Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. It's the twice-weekly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, we have got so much to cram in in our time together. We've got some brilliant uh, questions from you and a whole range, lots from the United States this week, and uh, but quite a bit on Brexit, some follow-ups to the interview I did with Andy Burnham, now the, uh, of course, the mayor of Greater Manchester. And yeah, a whole range of brilliant uh, questions and points uh, from the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. We are gathering to make sense of it all. If it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on what the deeper issues are in relation to uh, Richard Sharp, the chairman of the BBC, and uh, what it kind of tells us more about the BBC. You know, there's been a lot about what it tells us about the appointment process and the establishment and so on, and Boris Johnson and money and Richard Sharp's view of money and Boris Johnson, all of which are fascinating and shine light in a way on the Johnson regime. And I will reflect a bit on that as well, of course, because it's all interconnected, uh, but a bit on the BBC too. Um, And then we return to your fantastic questions. Um, The live shows are coming up very soon, starting next month. Um, And they are all listed in the blurb for the podcast. And so you can just tap on them and get tickets because, yeah, it feels to me that this is an important time for for live events where we gather to make sense of it all. Um, And yeah, who knows where we will be by then. I think I mentioned last week, they all hover around that period of the budget, which is one of these budgets which are both politically and economically compelling. Um, You know, the screams for tax cuts from those who've already forgotten what happened in September and October. Uh, And yet at the same time, quite often from the same people, demands for more spending on defence, etc. Anyway, uh, live shows, I'll tell you more about what's going to be in them when I know what's going to be in them, because it's reflecting the time they are being held. Uh, And yeah, I was going to mention uh, Patreon again. Thank you, all those of you who subscribe. Do you know what? I've got a confession to make. I listen that the current series of bonus podcasts are on um, troublemakers, you know, those who don't automatically focus on their kind of career towards ministerial grandeur um, or front bench grandeur on the opposition benches, but um, follow ideas and beliefs uh, and cause trouble. And the first uh, episode was on Tony Benn, although, of course, he did pursue a cabinet career, uh, but didn't, after 1979, really reappear again on the front bench. He did a bit, very fleetingly. And the latest one is Enoch Powell. Now, this is my confession. I actually listened to it. I mean, it's a weird thing listening to yourself. And, I, you know, I found it quite... I, I, I got hooked. I thought, oh, I wonder what's coming next. Um, anyway... Uh, it's, it's on Patreon. If if you sign up now, it'll be a feast of fresh podcasts for you. Obviously, those of you who've been regulars, you get it once a month. But the, the series, what have we done? One on kind of cinematic British general elections, weird, strange, almost eerie general election campaigns. And, uh, yeah, there have been a whole range of series since we began Patreon about a year ago, actually. Anyway, thank you all so much. It's much appreciated. Now, 
the BBC, the context, of course, of Richard Sharp's appointment as chair of the BBC was uh, Boris Johnson's uh, first attempt uh, to uh, put in Charles Moore as chair of the BBC. Uh, It was, in a way, the most blatant of Johnson's attempted acts of patronage, and there were many, and I don't know, we're soon going to get his list of appointments to the House of Lords and take a deep breath before reading that, um, if they all get through. Uh, But this uh, attempt to put Charles Moore in there was kind of blatant in the sense that Moore actually has called for the abolition of the BBC. He doesn't believe in it. He tried not to pay the license fee. He wants a sort of different kind of BBC, a much narrower BBC. Um, And to put him in uh, was in some ways uh, an act of provocation. If he had accepted it, he finally didn't. I think he thought about it and then didn't. Um, But it was not just an act of provocation. It uh, was much more than that, as we have explored before on this podcast. Boris Johnson is allergic to scrutiny, which is unfortunate for a politician in a democracy, because scrutiny is what happens. But he, on the whole, and it's a form of genius, uh, managed to escape scrutiny on his rise to the top. He got away with things. He noted he got away with things uh, and yet continued to rise and therefore thought he could continue to get away with things. But I think one of his shocks as Prime Minister, although he obviously loved much of it, uh, the theatre, the perch at the top of politics and so on, um, I think a shock for him was the level of scrutiny. I don't think that is one of the things he contemplated in advance of getting the job um, because he would have known he wouldn't have got away with the things that he tried to get away with. Wallpaper, parties, or a tolerance of parties at the very least, and so on. Um, And he avoided scrutiny often by turning down interviews, by appointing... uh, cabinets that were wholly subservient to him. Uh, Putting in as culture secretary Nadine Doris was one of his sort of acts uh, to uh, frighten the BBC. And uh, another was the attempt to put in Charles Moore. And when Charles Moore couldn't get it, uh, he turned to Richard Sharp or Richard Sharp turned to the BBC. And Many people have said that this was of no great uh, shock or aberration, and they cite the uh, Labour government who put in uh, Gavin Davis as chair of the BBC. Gavin Davis was married to Sue Nye, who worked for Gordon Brown in the Treasury and had worked for Labour leaders uh, well before uh, she got that particular post. Um, and they put in Greg Dyke as a director general. But there is a big difference uh, when you have a dynamic of a Labour government appointing people to very high profile posts like the chair of the BBC and the director general of the BBC. And when you do it with the conservative government and someone like Johnson appointing people to, in the hope, from Johnson's perspective, of sorting the place out to, you know, ask me 
bloody difficult question. Uh, uh, get on with it, sorting out the impartiality of the BBC, partisan, biased. Um, and uh, here's why it's, a, it's different. Uh, I followed very closely the era of Gavin Davis and uh, Greg Dyke. And what happened when they were appointed is, of course, the mighty Tory newspapers, and they remain, by the way, very powerful uh, under Labour governments. They don't shrivel uh, when they discover that the views they've been pumping out on their front pages aren't reflected in the country or necessarily in their readership. In some ways, they become more strident. What happens with newspapers is uh, when a new government comes in, when a Labour government comes in, for a few months, there's a slightly lower kind of volume of horror and a sense of uh, a nightmare unfolding. Um, aware that their readers want to give a Labour government a honeymoon, but then all hell breaks loose again pretty quickly. And they really went for this appointment of Gavin Davis and Greg Dyke, uh, and both, I think, were uh, troubled by the attacks they were getting as allegedly appointees of a Labour government. So in a way, the BBC was already or parts of it anyway, seeing itself as a kind of opposition role. Uh, somebody uh, was quoted saying it, one of the editors, uh, there's no opposition in the House of Commons, so we'll become the opposition when Labour were winning those landslides. And uh, that was fine for these two, uh, uh, Dyke and uh, Gavin, because uh, it kind of countered the idea that they were Labour lackeys who were going to pump out Labour propaganda. And, of course, it reached its uh, terrible denouement with the Andrew Gilligan accusations that Blair and Campbell lied uh, to persuade uh, basically the House of Commons and the wider electorate to back going to war in Iraq, which, if you think about it, there can be no stronger allegation than that. But the Tory newspapers uh, had a problem uh, with that one. They loathed the BBC. They loathed Blair and the Labour government. So which way would they turn? They turned to back the BBC and gave screaming support. Gilligan got articles in the Mail on Sunday following his initial allegation. Um, and there were editorials praising the robust courage of uh, Dyke and the BBC uh, uh, Chair Gavin Davis, who was backing Dyke, uh, who had originally said they backed every word of the Gilligan reports, which if you read them, which they hadn't done, certainly Greg Dyke hadn't done, uh, could not have been at, at the very least wholly accurate. But they did, and they quite enjoyed it because they were getting this praise from the Tory papers who had tormented them. So you get, in a weird way... Uh, if a Labour government appoints Labour-related people, um, you don't necessarily get what Johnson hoped he would get, uh, less scrutiny, you get more. Now, no doubt when Richard Sharp went in, uh, he had every intention of being an adherent to the rules of impartiality. Indeed, um, this became his mission, along with the... Uh, 
Director General Tim Davey. Uh, impartiality. There was even a quote. I, 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 I haven't found it, but somebody told me that the uh, chair, Sharp, was talking about an impartiality revolution, uh, which is an astonishing phrase um, because, A, it's meaningless. What does it mean, an impartiality revolution? Um, but also it implies there had been a huge problem about impartiality. Uh, if you need to have a revolution on the issue, things hadn't been going well. And on this, it's a reminder that impartiality or your view of it is itself subjective. Um, it's, it, it's a term that is both uh, meaningful in that you can define it. You report without any bias to the left or right. You are impartial or, in theory anyway, the centre ground, although that imprecise term is quite often where I think in their minds a lot of... Uh, BBC reporters begin the kind of assumption that that's kind of benevolent terrain. But that, in a way, is a different issue. So this impartiality revolution was unleashed uh, at the BBC under the uh, joint kind of leadership of Tim Davey and Richard Sharp. Um, and inevitably, when Richard Sharp has come from being a big Tory donor, uh, working uh, at high levels with uh, Johnson, Sunak and others. You come to a place like the BBC with an assumption that the failure of impartiality has been a failure to report fairly that side of politics. Now, this is a sort of unconscious thing. I'm absolutely sure, uh, of course, you know, no one goes to the BBC to sort of overtly propagandise. No one. Um, and by the way, uh, things have been said about Robbie Gibb that he's trying to churn out. You know, Robbie Gibb, who was editor of virtually all the political programmes, uh, then went to work for Theresa May, ardent Brexiteer, now on some BBC executive board or whatever. Uh, he won't be there uh, overtly wanting to propagandise. Um, but you arrive with assumptions. Now, everyone has assumptions. Um, and here's Robbie's, he's talked about it quite openly, is that the BBC is too liberal, it doesn't understand uh, various parts of the country, it never understood the forces of Brexit, and so on. But that is um, in itself subjective. You see, I listen to the uh, coverage of, say, the referendum, and for a few seconds, there were people within the BBC saying, well, maybe they should have scrutinised Brexit far more forensically. Uh, what did Brexit, what would Brexit mean in practical terms would have been an interesting hour-long, two-hour-long programme. And in the mid-70s, when there was a referendum, the BBC did hold such programmes at peak time. But that brings us to another issue in a moment. Um, it wouldn't do that now at peak time uh, in quite the same way. It would stage a debate, and there were many Brexit debates, but they are shallow and superficial. Um, everyone got worked up about it. The presenters wanted to present them. Editors wanted to edit them. These live debates, um, which did command peak time viewing, uh, but you look at the transcripts. They are shallow assertions, largely unchallenged. Um, and uh, that kind of is it's politics as showbiz. Good, good kind of bit of theatre. Um, 
But anyway, they did for a second wonder about uh, the uh, coverage of the referendum. But very quickly that got countered by a sense uh, from the new director general himself, who was a conservative candidate uh, some time ago, um, that the BBC didn't really understand the country it was reporting. It didn't get Brexit. It didn't get the votes. You know, all the stuff that actually you hear uh, from the kind of Johnson entourage and others. And so uh, very quickly it became, oh, yeah, we've got to get people out in a slightly patronising way into uh, the north of England. We've got to get people across the, you know. Uh, so people would go and present for one night in some part of England and, or one morning and so on um, as to symbolic attempts to address these kinds of issues. But given however much uh, Richard Sharp felt he was pioneering on behalf of, in inverted commas, impartiality, what has happened in recent days shows that um, if he doesn't resign, he might as well do so. Because what happens in the BBC is um, there are sort of layers of uh, managers, there's a sort of convoluted hierarchy uh, where it's actually quite hard for a director general, let alone the BBC chair, uh, to make a direct impact on the output. There are sort of layers of managers detached from the output um, and incidentally are fairly indifferent to it. The, the output is a sort of on their radar but only a bit compared with all the internal meetings with other managers and targets and discussions about how you know you need to get to hear the people more on bulletins and all this kind of those kind of banal discussions um uh so what happens is uh that a tone is set really by a chair and director general and the tone the reason why uh, there wasn't any reference to the consequences of Brexit for a long time was not because anything as crude as a diktat was sent down saying don't mention Brexit, like don't mention the war, um, but a mood was permeated from the top that uh, the BBC misunderstood Brexit and the forces behind it, and therefore, oh, yeah, be careful. Well, we mustn't touch Brexit. Oh, we, you know, people have want us to move on. Blah 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 blah, which is in itself subjective. You know, there is an argument. Oh, let's move on. You can put that argument, but don't pretend that is part of an impartiality referendum. It's a view. But anyway, it's based on an authority. Obviously, uh, the multi-layered managers all want to get on with the director general. Um, so that gives the director general kind of power to set a tone uh, within the organization. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and the chair, similarly. And when they dance together, that's quite powerful. So editors would have been aware um, all the way down the chain. And as David Dimbleby uh, wrote in his broadly pro-BBC book, the main calculation all these editors make is to decide what the manager above them is thinking and think it as well. And it's that that kind of leads to a certain pattern 
of thought. And that's been happening. There's all this stuff about impartiality and all the rest of it. Um, and it is, as I say, deeply subjective under the cover of objectivity being the main principle. Um, but the reason why Richard Sharp might as well go is it, it is based on having an authority. Uh, and, and Sharp arrived with considerable authority, a favourite of Johnson's at a time when the BBC was scared of the Conservative government and what it might do to it and the licence fee, and when they are negotiating for a new licence fee and when they are under financial pressure. All that adds to the authority of a chair who has the backing of a critical government. Um, that's gone and won't come back. And therefore, his views will not uh, permeate down all the sort of layers of uh, managers and unaccountable figures who kind of attend meetings and then tell their manager below them what needs to be the kind of criteria when making judgments about news and current affairs. Uh, it, it, it's over. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the BBC has faults, but to they uh, all the ones I've spoken to, without exception, uh, recognise it is unacceptable not to declare uh, that you have been a mediator for a prime minister to get a ton of money or to borrow a ton of money from some obscure cousin in Canada. The whole thing, by the way, is another kind of plot line, isn't it, in a sort of bizarre kind of thriller or comedy or farce. Um, and so uh, when you hear this, maybe he's gone, maybe he's decided to cling on and uh, carry on uh, because it's like so many of the jobs at the top of BBC. On the whole, it's great fun until you get the, uh, into a sort of news story. And sometimes you get into a news story almost by chance uh, if you're near the top of the BBC. You know, you sort of... Just having a good time, easy time, attending meetings, going home, going to BBC events, and it's all great. And then suddenly you find yourself, you're a news story, you're not quite sure, you know. But this one is very, very clear. And um, so it doesn't really matter whether he goes or stays uh, in the sense that his authority is in trouble. And Tim Davey, too, therefore, uh, the Director General is somewhat undermined because it was definitely a dance between the two of them on this uh, uh, issue of uh, highlighting impartiality. Um, and uh, so it will be interesting to see in terms of the way these people are appointed. This is more problematic. It's a publicly funded body. The government sets the uh, license fee, the amount people should uh, pay for the BBC. So it is involved. And um, you can see, given that, that a, a government might want to be involved in the appointment of the chair. If they're going to take the hit uh, on in terms of the licence fee and whether it goes up, um, I think the, there is a case for them being involved. But then the scrutiny begins and the accountability begins. And uh, most of the time you won't have rogues like... Uh, Johnson. It was quite interesting when there was a vacancy and the B, uh, the government were looking for a BBC chair, Labour government. Um, they really didn't know who to turn to. They, 
you, you know, they, they didn't know many people in number 10 and the Treasury and so on um, who might be suitable and sort of came upon Gavin Davis partly because they knew him. But I don't think they were under any illusion that the BBC would then sort of end its scrutiny of the government. Uh, whereas I think Johnson, as I say, was fearful of scrutiny. And I think he would have thought, oh, Sharpie, oh, Sharpie will sort them out. Get him, get him in there. And for sure, it was too obvious. Uh, uh, for Even Johnson uh, couldn't get away with the Charles Moore one, although he would, he would have done. He would have put him in. Charles Moore didn't want to go. Um, but it is difficult. Uh, who, who, who should appoint these people? If you, uh, if you have an independent body to make appointments, who appoints the independent body to make the appointments and how are they held to account and scrutinized so i think the key and in a way this has worked um is uh, scrutiny and transparency although it has only worked thanks to the media i think it was the sunday times uh who uncovered uh sharp's role uh in this and i mean you know to be honest he is a bit like truss you know he's the least interesting bit about it i mean it's vaguely interesting that he cannot see uh, playing that mediating role uh, to make sure it was done within the rules, quite ironic when uh, anything to do with Johnson, um, was not actually a hugely helpful role in getting Johnson the money uh, via, he, I think, Rich Sharp said, look, all I was doing was to make sure it was done properly. I got in touch with the cabinet secretary. Um, so, you know, he he he, he is... Uh, much diminished. But I think of much more interest is, and much more concerning, is this so-called focus on impartiality is basically quite lazy. I know they're doing it partly to please a government who thinks the BBC struggles with impartiality. And of course, the leadership of the BBC must find means to work with a government. And that means becomes even more urgent when it's a government as hostile as this one. But it, it's quite a lazy thing because it doesn't go uh, and ask deeper questions. It's quite interesting that Tim Davy has never been a journalist. Most director generals are a journalist. And I'm talking mainly here about news and current affairs as they are in their impartiality thing, although they're extending it to others. It's very interesting. One good thing they did was to commission a report from Andrew Dilnot and a couple of others on economic reporting. And I found that fascinating because one of the things they pointed out, it's very balanced, but one of the things they pointed out is that there was this tendency to, in the BBC to regard debt as a bad thing. And it doesn't always have to be bad. Um, and I've been banging on about this for so long. I, reading this was a sort of uh, like, you know, taking drugs. I was so excited because, um, as you know, I've been sort of talking about the endless the acceptance of the George Osborne agenda in 2010 about the deficit uh, being wholly bad um, and every interview of Miliband and Bulls and others, how are you going to uh, fix the deficit? And I've mentioned more recently, you know, the interviews with Rachel Reeves and others on the Today Pro, ah, oh, but that means you'll have a black hole and how are you going to raise the money to fill the black hole and all the acceptance of terms uh, that are actually uh, partisan. It's inadvertent. 
Um, again, there is no overt partisanship either way uh, at the BBC, but inadvertently there can be, and that was one example. So that was a good thing, but I bet they didn't necessarily want that to be one of the things to emerge when it was uh, commissioned. I suspect they were worried. They sort of had bought the line um, that the BBC just regards public spending as a good and gets all these bodies on to talk about the money that they want and it's left unchallenged i don't see that dynamic actually i think it is really challenged where where the money is going to come from it's one of the reasons why labor are too scared to commit to any public spending pledges in advance of an election um so that was interesting but again look at my response you know (laughs) and of course maybe it's i'm being subjective maybe you know those of you who think deficit is always terrible and agree with george Osborne think it it's, it's a form of impartiality when the bbc kind of bought that narrative i don't but it's it's really complicated but more fundamentally in the end impartiality to be honest, uh, is what the uh, BBC... Oh, yeah, I was sorry, before I go on to that, I was just going to mention one other thing. So the dynamic has been quite stifling when you have a director general and a BBC chair dancing as one uh, with a particular view about impartiality. Um, and But it doesn't always have to be like that. You see, uh, Margaret Thatcher was almost as blatant as Boris Johnson. In fact, famously, It was in relation to an appointment to the BBC that she said to somebody, is he one of us? Um, And that became the title of Hugo Young's brilliant biography of Margaret Thatcher, one of the best. Is he one of us? Um, So they're all at it. Uh, And she appointed as BBC chair Marmaduke Hussey who was as committed to the Tory cause as the current occupant of that role. But he faced a formidable director general, John Burt, who had a clear sense of purpose about what the BBC in general, but specifically news and current affairs, should be and would be all about. And actually, across the political spectrum, there was respect for that. You know, the mission to explain uh, the bias against understanding that the BBC should address. And there was a real clear sense of purpose and resources. There is no equivalent now. And that, so old Marmaduke Hussey, uh, if you read the diaries of cabinet ministers and people like Woodrow Wyatt from the 80s, he used to go to drinks parties with all the Tories, his Tory friends. And they were all saying, oh, uh, Duke, get rid of uh, Brian Redhead, a then presenter of the Today programme, who they thought was a Labour supporter. And Hussey said, oh, yeah, I'll go back and sort that one out. And he never did. To his frustration, his friend said, what have you done about Redhead? He's like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, but Bert had a clear sense of mission that meant that Duke Hussey could not interfere um, and did not really have the authority to uh, because uh, things were moving at speed with a sense of purpose and momentum in news and current affairs. Now you have the opposite, a kind of sense of drift. Some of the most formidable figures, Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, Andrew Marr, all leave. Um, the layers of managers don't accept kind of responsibility. The ones I've bumped into say, oh, it's all good that they've left um, and, and move on complacently. Um, you have no real focus on purpose. You know, the rolling news 24-hour BBC channel basically has given up. It's now sort of going to be done as a world, BBC World channel, 
uh, leaving Sky News with a monopoly on domestic a domestic rolling news channel. Uh, programs have been dropped from that, which cost about 25p to put out, which had discussion and analysis uh, with a wide audience. Um, and I don't think people thought it through. They just, oh, yeah, no, we'll get rid of that, we'll get rid of that. Um, meetings took place where banalities were exchanged. Very interesting. As individuals, these people in these layers of managers are great and thoughtful, but they have become institutionalized. And as David Dimbleby observed, basically think what the one above them is trying to think. And, you know, as a result, at the moment, there is really no sense of purpose beyond this bizarre, banal focus on impartiality. And that's the deeper crisis, actually, uh, when they should be looking at, say, in, in radio and indeed to some extent in television, in the world of podcasts, where uh, kind of uh, longer form podcasts uh, about news and current affairs, attracting big audiences, some uh, some getting kind of half the audience aged under 35, whereas at the BBC there are these naive discussions, oh, if we get rid of an older presenter and put a younger one in, maybe we'll get younger people. It it's too easy, too simplistic. And this fear of letting interviews breathe, um, which is one of my themes, as you know. Um, so the Laura Coombsberg programme, I don't think it's anything to do with her. Many of the presenters are instruments of the producers within the BBC. It's a big producer culture. But uh, I kind of look at the tweet about her programme. There are about eight guests on in an hour. You know, it's just you're not going to get anywhere interesting with any of them. And um, it's 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 a real shame. You know, I kind of there have been points where I've become so disillusioned with the output. And, uh, you know, to be honest, anyone directly involved in the output is scathing of the management structure, not all the individuals that occupy it, but the structure. And all those who leave say how liberated they feel to be accountable, say, to one editor rather than 30. Um, but, um, of course, you know, it's an institution worthy of defence when you... And it's become a cliche, you know. <laughs> but when you get things like Happy Valley, uh, which kind of binds a whole country in excitement... Um, it's fantastic. And when you get sports coverage without all those damned adverts, you kind of relish it. Um, it works as an idea, uh, like the NHS works as an idea. You know, it's free when you switch the telly on and you don't pay adverts for it. And there are regulations which uh, uh, kind of bind in some kind of quality. But God, the tabloid kind of, but but awkward tabloidy down market instincts, the vox pops, the unwatchable question time, which they love because it gets tweets and, oh, yeah, people click on some row between two of the five panellists who all get five minutes in total. Uh, because there are too many panellists and then they get the audience in to start a row. And Oh, God. It's at moments like that where I really find it hard to justify the licence fee. And I know tons feel like that. But anyway, uh, I'll be going on for too long. But I think the issue goes deeper than Richard Sharp 
um, who I say himself I think is pretty irrelevant now in all of this, whether he stays or goes. But getting that sense of purpose, which the BBC did have under Burt, uh, with a much stronger Tory government and Tory prime minister than the ones they're facing at the moment. And what do they do under a Labour government, uh, having tried so hard to appease? Big questions. And I wish it would acquire an intelligent sense of purpose. And then everyone, I think, would rally round it. But God, do they need to sort out some of the output. Uh, OK, thank you for that. Now, over to all of you. And just a reminder that if you want to join in on our cooperative, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. And, uh, yeah, what a range of conversations we're going to have in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. I'm going to begin by, uh, uh, yeah, Ryan, who's writing in from New Jersey. Uh, Oh, thank you, Ryan, for all your kind comments about the podcast and the Patreon bonus podcast. And so I much appreciate it. Now, Ryan sent in four questions comparing the United States and Britain. And um, Ryan, if it's okay with with you, I'm only going to read one out now, uh, just for time purposes. But you've got me thinking on all of them. Uh, One of them, a question that's always fascinated me is why has the USA struggled to elect a female leader as president, while the UK has had three so far? Have you thought about this and can you give any theories as to why the UK has been way ahead of the US in this regard? Is it something about the culture and or structures that helps explain this? Well, I think actually, um, Ryan, see, in Britain, there's been a lot of talk about why the US in terms of race has been ahead of Britain um, and uh, in terms of representation. Uh, And... Uh, and yet you are right, all the presidents have been male. But it's been a close-run thing. I mean, Hillary Clinton almost became a female president. She got more votes than Trump, but of course didn't. Um, Now, there have been three Tory prime ministers, no uh, Labour female prime ministers. So it's, it's, it's a pretty small pool that we are talking about in terms of comparisons. And you're better placed in New Jersey to make a judgment on uh, why that is. It looks possible as if the next presidential race will be uh, kind of as uh, narrow as the last one, kind of two elderly men battling it out. Um, But, you know, there isn't... uh, British and American politics are, I think, quite close in many respects, uh, in many respects depressingly so, um, with the exception that in America... There is this big religious moral dimension, which doesn't kind of impose itself very often in British politics. So I can't be more precise, Ryan. Um, I think it's been difficult for women in both countries, to be honest. Um, But in fairly freakish circumstances, the Tories elected two of the women. Uh, You know, Liz Truss got in in weird circumstances, and we know what happened. And Theresa May, too, after the referendum defeat. Um, But thank you very much uh, 
for your question. And yeah, thrilled that you're listening there in New Jersey. Uh, Sean Farrelly, uh, I'm equally thrilled to hear from Sean. I've got tickets to the show in Birmingham, traveling down from Glasgow. So really looking forward to it. Oh, great. Well, thank you for coming, Sean. See you there. Um, yeah, I'm really appreciate it. That's uh, quite a trip. Um, Sean wondered, I just wanted to ask that with polling showing the Tories still holding 24%, what do they need to do for those numbers to hit single figures or get below 20? Is it simply that a large amount of people will stick by them regardless? Um, Or do we have people with short memories who don't see the erosion due to it spanning uh, 12 years? Um, It is interesting because I got an email last week suggesting that we might be seeing the strange death of conservative England. And I I kind of didn't agree with that. I don't think we're, we're, you know, we might be seeing the strange death of this strange death of this conservative government. Well, it's been a strange, strange 12 years. I tell you, historians from the right to the left will be fascinated by these 12 years. It would be 14 by the time of the election of uh, Tory rule. But, um, yeah, it's still there. You know, for all the chaos um, we are living through at the moment, pollsters ask people and 24% um, around say, oh, they're going to vote for them gratefully. And I think, you know, given half a chance, England votes conservative. Uh, I don't think, funnily enough, that means England is a conservative country. Um, but I think the reasons they do so well. Let's, uh, if, if you don't mind, I haven't got time now. It's, uh, but another time, it's the state of the Labour Party, the voting system, uh, the, the power of the media. Um, but even in the eighties, if you add the sort of Labour SDP vote, it was significantly higher than the Tory vote. And yet there was talk of the Thatcherite zeitgeist of the 80s. And she was the dominant figure, of course. Uh, but even though she won election landslides uh, with hugely triumphal leader in terms of elections, um, you know, the SDP was to the left of New Labour. Um, so was the 80s quite the right wing decade? It was portrayed to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but there are always enough to keep the Conservatives breathing, in my view. Although there are some, I think I mentioned last week, I heard Danny Finkelstein, the Tory peer, saying one option that has perhaps been underplayed is a worse result for the Tories than in 97. Well, let's see, I wonder. Um, Both Andrew Kitching and Anthony Wilson point out uh, the Observer story. Uh, And Andrew Kitching writes that, uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, it's about the one, this Brexit meeting that took place uh, behind closed doors, um, where various figures from Labour and the government came together to see whether there could be improvements on Brexit. Well, not whether really, but what the improvements could be, it included apparently Michael Gove, um, Peter Mandelson chaired it, uh, David Lammy came, Labour's shadow foreign secretary, and so on. Um 
And Andrew Kitching wonders, uh, I wondered initially whether we might be returning to common sense politics. However, The Observer also now has a more recently filed story on the UK threatening to pull out of the Horizon Science Programme over the Northern Ireland Protocol deal. Sunak needs to have courage and get the Northern Ireland deal through with Labour votes. He has to take on the ERG or the government is increasingly the roadblock to economic growth. Well, this Brexit deal is a roadblock to economic growth. And that was part of the context, I assume, of this gathering. Uh, Because if any government wants economic growth, it needs to unravel Lord Frosty Frost's deal. It's hilarious. Uh, When this report came out about this meeting, old Frosty Frost uh, told the Daily Mail, um, how dare they consider touching with a comma of my triumphant deal. It's not my deal that's wrong. It's just that this Tory government won't cut taxes, won't deregulate. Well, actually, it's planning to burn every regulation to Lord Frosty Frost's delight uh, that the British governments have negotiated over the years to help the UK. Um, But yeah, well, it's another tiny straw in the wind, isn't it? Um, That there is, I think, a growing recognition the whole thing has been a disaster, but specifically the Frost-Johnson deal, uh, which I wonder whether Johnson even fully read. Um, and so, yeah, uh, let, let's see where this all develops in the coming months and perhaps under a different government. More on Brexit to come. More, much more, much more. Uh, Dominique Joule actually is on Brexit, uh, our French correspondent, of course. And she says that uh, France 3 Normandy TV held a roundtable discussion on Wednesday, which was broadcast live from the port side at Cherbourg, taking part with the manager of the port, the head of Normandy Tourism, the Anglo-French coordinator for the Normandy ports and the director of traffic operations for Brittany Ferries. They all concluded um, unanimously uh, that Brexit was proving to be a massive problem uh, and that there had been a significant decrease in business activity since Brexit. Um, And they know uh, that panel Uh, No one expected to achieve pre-pandemic levels of activity until operational restrictions caused by Brexit are addressed. Yeah, they've got to be sorted. Thank you for that. So that's the talk in France. You know, I think people like Lord Frosty Frost think that the whole of Europe is envious of our arrangements. Well, Frosty, that's the kind of programme being broadcast in France about your uh, deals. Um, uh, Now, here's another one, actually. Forget we... This is becoming a Brexit special. Uh, Nick uh, uh, Murray, who uh, is in uh, Belgium, uh, and he writes partly about co-payments because our Belgium uh, correspondent, uh, Caroline, has uh, praised the system in Belgium, the access you get. But it does include an element of co-payments. And uh, Nick says, well, you can do it, but it, it you do pay through the higher taxation and, of course, the payments themselves. Um, but about Brexit, Nick says, I'm living in Belgium in Brexit exile. My now husband is Spanish and we were trying to settle in the UK. But as we're in our 20s and just starting out in our careers, he was unable to get a job that would sponsor his visa. Even though we got married, he would still have needed a mid-senior level job. So we have had to leave. Now that we're married, I've been able to get a work permit anywhere in the EU. 
I'm not saying I'm brainy, but he definitely is. I wonder whether there will be a conversation in the UK about a Brexit brain drain. Starting, Nick, starting. And you and, uh, yeah, you and your husband are classic depressing examples. I can't foresee us ever moving back unless my home country, Scotland, gains independence and EU membership. Yeah, well, blimey. Oh, he says, thank, oh, thank you for this. Thank you for the great podcast and great perspective. I listen while running, often dodging between Eurocrats around the commission. There's an image. Uh, yeah, it's probably quite a lot of dodging to do. Uh, thank you very much. Well, at least you can travel anywhere in the EU. We're all stuck here. Um, uh, thank you. Over to Joanna Lata, who has a, a good point on a different theme. Uh, for a while, I've wondered... Uh, whether the combination of the proposed boundary changes and the new regulations regarding voter ID might cause problems for Labour in a general election. ID requirements will uh, be particularly uh, negative, uh, sorry, will have a negative impact regarding Labour voters as they're less likely to have the approved forms of acceptable ID. Sir John Curtis said recently uh, that because of the boundary changes, Labour would also need a bigger persistent lead in the polls to avoid a hung parliament. Yeah, that is, uh, uh, well, John Curtis is a form of God, isn't he? He descends down and gives us his verdict. Um, yeah, the boundary changes uh, benefit the uh, Conservatives. In terms of uh, this voter registration thing, I think it could become quite a big story on Election Day of people turning up and being turned away because they haven't got the appropriate ID. Although the Labour machine has become a highly effective one in getting the vote out and making sure the vote is uh, kind of properly out. Uh, it was highly effective, actually, under the uh, Corbyn era at getting the vote out, certainly in 2017. Uh, 2019, they struggled, but that's because the vote wasn't going to go out for them anyway. Um, but um, so, so that will counter it a bit. But I, I reckon it could be a story on the day of people turning up and being turned away. Thank you very much. Uh, Valentina Burgess, uh, Oh, yeah. Now, this is in response to the Andy Burnham interview where he was uh, singing the praise, not just of his personal experience as mayor of Greater Manchester, but of the system of mayors, kind of radicalising policy uh, in England in a way that's just impossible from Westminster for various reasons. Um, uh, but Valentina says there's one aspect of English uh, devolution that I think nobody is addressing. It's prevailing unpopularity. Andy Burnham frequently snipes about Scottish devolution, but it's undeniable that Holyrood has incredible public support. It has legitimacy. English mayors do not. The system of English mayors has been imposed from above, and when consulted, the public has voted overwhelmingly to abolish mayors. Yeah, uh, all of that is true. Uh, but I think on the whole, it's quite like a, quite a lot of things, um, uh, Valentina, that when, uh, when they get them, they approve of them. I don't think there will be any move in places like Liverpool, Greater Manchester, London, who did vote in the end for uh, this system, uh, to get rid of it. Um, so uh, I, I, well, you know what I think. I've been going on about it in relation to London for a long time. I think this is a system that works. But Jane Roberts has also uh, written in, uh, I've just listened in Central America, where I'm on holiday. 
uh, in my night time to your interview with Andy Burnham, whom I rate very highly, especially as mayor of Greater Manchester. But uh, local authorities are also based on place. So too Scotland, Wales, London, and arguably even Westminster. Andy uh, was making a great point uh, about uh, the the whole potency of his uh, power now is it's based and related to place in his case greater manchester but uh yeah now this is interesting jane says political leadership at all levels in uk model should and often does embrace place almost inevitably lower prof- profile than greater manchester but wigan preston hackney and many other places have done fantastic local work uh as councils uh and many moons ago camden too I was leader of Camden Council in the early 2000s uh, when uh, we took uh, when, of course, it took, when, when we tried had to take on our Labour government in order to pursue what was right for our borough, notably on housing, when absurdly the edict was to outsource. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you see, there's a complicated dynamic, isn't there, between the centre and local. Uh, love the podcast mind. Oh, thank you. I'm certainly engaged. Oh, well, that's thrilling. And certainly nighttime on holiday in the US, that is a level of engagement that thrills. But of course, we expect. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah. Local government clearly is not going to be um, wiped out of this uh, kind of map, uh, Jane. I, but I don't think you think that either. But you want a, a greater acknowledgement for the role that it plays. And yeah, it, it, most do, some don't. And that is one of the problems with devolution. You will be devolving some uh, powers to councils that you either disagree with, you know, midterm, probably there will be a big swing if there's a Labour government to Tory councils. Presumably you will disagree with the way they will want to spend the money that they get. Um, there are bad councils. There are some very good ones, as you have cited. Um, I think you sound, cited, of course, rightly, Manchester Council as being very uh, uh, creative and constructive. So it is a kind of complicated map. Um, but I do remain a fan of the mayoral uh, model. But clearly you do. But I know you, you want a wider reference. Um, so thank you for making... Uh, the point. Now, um, I think we we better stop, you know, we've been going on for some time, but I've got some great questions. Uh, 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 Dr. Bendel uh, Grosvenor uh, wonders about the power of special advisors like Nick Timothy, who we uh, uh, interviewed on the podcast quite recently. He certainly was a powerful one. Um, And whether it is uh, legitimate for special advisors, he was one himself, uh, uh, Dr. Bendor Grosvenor, uh, whether they should have this kind of power. I think they, they, elected politicians need them. They can't just be dependent on neutral civil servants. They need people who think like them or who think more creatively than them in some cases, not always. Uh, Sean Farrell uh, points out that on Tuesday, we've already heard from you, Sean, uh, Joe Biden delivered a State of the Union speech in which he centred the problem of monopoly. Uh, turning the Democrats against the legacy of Bill Clinton. That speech, Joe Biden's, was radical. Um, and uh, on climate change, on, I should say, breaking up the kind of monopolies, challenging implicitly the sort of third-way politics of uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, which do not work now. 
uh, arguably didn't then. Uh, yeah, it's, it's worth reading that speech. David Perkins has a very controversial proposition, uh, but one I think that is really worth thinking about. Uh, political parties of all hues struggle to find good candidates at local and national level. Uh, in my experience, too often candidates are chosen who don't have the qualities and depth of experience required if they get to the Commons. I would suggest it would be better if anyone who wished to put themselves forward for public office had to attend and achieve a certificate of competence from an independent body like the Institute of Government. Uh, yeah, all hell would break loose if this was imposed. But you're on to something. You're on to something about the um, uh, the way candidates are chosen, who they are, uh, and the quality that then gets into the House of Commons. And it's a sort of underplayed issue, I think. Um, uh, can you imagine and by the way, there are issues. Who pays for it, these courses? But there is something about the need. What do we want from MPs? Um, it's like, in a way, actually, parties quite often ask, don't really ask what we want from leaders beyond whether the leader is espousing what the party wants to hear at that, any given time. Um, yeah, uh, our white van driver, Andy, reports that Lee Anderson, uh, the new vice chairman, uh, his views are going down well um, in his local. Um, the only serious question in my pub, and I suspect a thousand others, is why he isn't already prime minister. Blimey, yeah. Uh, he says uh, it's very easy for us in our cooperative to forget that scores of these people get elected to parliament because large numbers of the English in particular not only support their beliefs but are happy to condone their conduct. Yeah, thank you very much. It, it is the case. But you see, I wonder, though, uh, whether driver Andy uh, Leanson as a deputy chairman will quite do the business for them. Uh, he's already been, Sunak has already con said the opposite on the death penalty, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, there's another great one from Ian Jones, who sees parallels between now and 2010, when Cameron got in in a hung parliament. He was able to form a deal with the Lib Dems, which did the Lib Dems in. Uh, what will Starmer do in such a situation? Um, I think it is worth looking at 2010 at some point in detail, Ian, because for all the focus now on Labour's 20-point lead and, you know, the influence of those who won in 1997, it could be be closer to 2010 where Cameron was way ahead in the build-up to 2010 and I remember having a discussion with my esteemed colleague John Rental, and John Rental wanted a Cameron victory hugely um, and he we had a bet and he I remember him predicting an overall majority of at least 70 for Cameron and of course by the time of the 2010 election uh, there was no majority um, and uh, that 20-point Labour lead, I don't know. I, I would, I'd, predictions are pointless at the moment. The, Tory, the government is making such a mess of so many things and have so much bad stuff to navigate this year. Perhaps it will remain solid. But that too will depend on Labour and how it does this year. It's not true wholly that governments just lose elections. Anyway, look, God, those of you running will have done 10K plus at the moment. And uh, those of you who are cooking will have overcooked something 
in the excitement of our time together. But look, thank you so much for tuning in. Oh, yeah, please leave a uh, review, but only if you love it. You know, these five-star reviews. I've been told now what it does. It helps you climb these charts uh, that we're all obsessed about in the world of podcasts. So it'd be great if you could. Uh, And that kind of expands our growing cooperative and yeah oh yeah we've got a fantastic interview uh, later in the week so do subscribe and then you get it automatically it just appears as if by magic uh, on whatever uh, kind of machine you use to get the podcast uh, yeah have a good time see you soon bye <laughs>